seated. Good evening to you. Matthew Gospel chapter 8 this evening, Sunday night through the Gospel according to Matthew. If you're with us here tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hand and it'll be marked to our passage tonight. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 record Jesus' most famous sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, it revealed uh, him to be, and it's, it's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by anyone. And the, the reaction of the audience to that message is that their jaws just dropped in terms of astonishment. They had never heard that kind of wisdom before. They had never heard it with that kind of purity They had never heard it spoken with that kind of authority. But Matthew continues now in chapter 8 to reveal to us that Jesus is, yes, the greatest teacher in human history, but he is much more than a great teacher. Sometimes people will look at Jesus and say, yes, he was a great teacher. Uh, But Matthew goes on to reveal that he was much more than that. And chapters 8 and 9 are a record of approximately 10 miracles that Jesus performed, and uh, not in any particular order. Uh, Matthew is not concerned about order or chronology in his gospel in this regard. And so he begins to lay out these great signs and wonders that Jesus did that testified to the fact that he was and is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. Now, we talk about, uh, so often we talk about in the Bible, signs and wonders, because God performs signs and wonders. And we stop to think about what uh, Jesus never performed a miracle or a sign or a wonder just to uh, say, now see, I can do that and you can't, or uh, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat or something like that. It was never to show off. There's always a reason for it, a purpose behind it. When we talk about a wonder, a wonder is something that stops people dead in their tracks in the daily of life. They see something and they realize only God could do that, and it makes them stop and begin to wonder. And then wonder is one of the things that then God's got our attention now, and it's easier for him to lead us to the Lord. A sign is very simply something that is God places within our path to lead us to a proper destination. All over in the city of Modesto, we have signs everywhere so that we can leave one particular place and then make our way safely to another destination based upon the signs. The signs ensure that we come to the proper conclusion to our journey. And when God performs miracles or God performs signs, it is intended that people would then see those signs and they would come to, their, to come to a proper conclusion concerning Jesus, and that is that he is the Son of God, become Christians or disciples of his as a result of that, and now they've come to the proper conclusion and the proper destination in their life. And so he begins here in chapter 8, verse 1, when he, that is Jesus, came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, the leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and he touched him, saying, 
I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus here demonstrates his authority over leprosy. And leprosy was one of the most feared diseases in the ancient world. It was uh, uh, without cure. It was an incurable disease in those days. And because of it, it was one of the most feared diseases. It's interesting when you read the Bible concerning leprosy, you never find that when God um, heals somebody or cures somebody of leprosy, it's never spoken of as them being healed. You never see that where the leper was healed of their leprosy. It is always that they were cleansed of their leprosy. And the reason that God always uses that language is because in the Bible, leprosy is a type or a symbol of sin. And like sin, leprosy was uh, impossible for a human being to uh, heal on their own. Socially, it resulted in a life of isolation, isolation from all that was healthy and everything that was normal in life. Emotionally, mentally, it resulted in a life of desperation and hopelessness, a picture of sin. And his faith here, he has both faith and doubt when he comes to the Lord. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so he has faith. I think all of us recognize ourselves in this statement of the leper. He possessed the absolute confidence in the fact that Jesus possessed the power to cleanse him. But his doubt was in the area of, is Jesus willing to do that? He knew that Jesus could do that, but his doubt was centered upon Jesus' willingness to do that uh, for him. And so what good is a God who has the power to cleanse what leprosy represents, and that is sin? What good is a God who has the power to cleanse from sin or from leprosy if he doesn't possess the willingness to do it? And Jesus answered his question here that he had both the power and the willingness to cleanse the leper. His body was restored instantly into perfect health. You were not allowed under the law of Moses to touch a leper. And so Jesus here, as he takes and he touches the leper and uh, put out his hand, touched him, there was no violation of the law. Somewhere in that little, tiny, whatever, microscopic, that healing power just went out from him in that moment, and what he touched was no longer leprosy in the man's life, and he was uh, healed. And so here is this beautiful, being restored to perfect condition, unbelievable, the life that he came out of and then into in an instant in time, so much like us when we're forgiven of uh, our sins. And what is true of the leper and what is taught in this passage is true, really, of all sinners. He not only possesses the power to cleanse us of our sin, but the willingness to cleanse us of our sin. Isn't that wonderful to think about? We we can grow so accustomed to the Lord and so accustomed to his power to forgive sins and then his willingness to forgive sins that sometimes we need a passage like this to slow us down and to remind ourselves of how awesome that is. Um, God didn't need to be willing to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of my, my sins, but that's the God that he is. And so it produces awe within us 
and worship within us, but it also then produces within us a desire to let all sinners know that Jesus is both able to and willing to cleanse everyone of their sins. Verse 4 is interesting because Jesus commands this man, now that he's cleansed of his leprosy, he's got a task for him to do. And he tells him that he was to go to show himself to the priest and offer the gift that the law of Moses commanded, and that was to be done as a testimony to the priest. The ceremony that Jesus is describing here is in Leviticus chapter 14, where there was a law given by God that was to be performed for the leprosy in the day of his cleansing. And, uh, and so there it is in Leviticus chapter 14. It had been 1,500 years at least in biblical history that any priest had ever had to perform uh, the ceremony for the cleansing of the leper on the day of his cleansing. Uh, there are three incidents of leprosy in the Old Testament in which God healed the leper. Moses, you remember, when he was called by God to deliver the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt, he wanted a, a sign and all, and he's talking with the Lord, and the Lord said, put your hand into your vest, come out, and then there it was, his hand was leper, leprous, and then the Lord healed him of that. Miriam was struck with leprosy and then cleansed by the Lord, Moses being cleansed too, I, don't, I think I said healed. And then Naaman, uh, the Syrian, was cleansed of his leprosy in the Old Testament as well. But other than that, this law sat in the books in, Rev in Leviticus chapter 14 for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and nobody ever practiced it. And suddenly Jesus comes on the scene and he begins his public ministry. And all of a sudden, at the temple in Jerusalem, the priests begin to get a stream of cleansed lepers coming into the temple asking that the priest would perform the ceremony for the leper in the day of his cleansing. And they hadn't practiced that in 1,500 years. The first one comes in here and says, Now where in the world is that? I know it's in the law somewhere. And little by little, they narrow it down to Leviticus chapter 14 where the two birds are taken, one is sacrificed, and the blood is put into the water of the bowl. One is released, all a symbol of... Of, uh, of sin that Jesus has come not only to pay the penalty for our sin, but also uh, to pay the price for our being freed from sin. And there was cedar wood that was involved that was put in the bloody water and a scarlet thread again, all of it speaking of the cross and what Christ would do in a greater measure for sinners and not just what he did for lepers. And so here, when Jesus begins to send these cleansed lepers to the temple, he is communicating to the priests in Jerusalem, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here. This is something that they hadn't had to deal with in such a long time. And Jesus sent the man in order to accomplish exactly that, to communicate uh, to them that he was here because only God could cleanse a leper. Now, when Jesus had entered into Capernaum, a centurion, and we're talking about a Gentile here. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was over a hundred uh, soldiers within the Roman army. And uh, always when you see centurions spoken about in the Bible, they're always spoken of favorably. They were the backbone of the Roman army. Uh, some of the best men in the Roman military were centurions. 
And so a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. So here you have a very seasoned, hardened uh, soldier. And they put some of their best soldiers in uh, Israel because it was kind of a, um, a difficult place for Rome to keep in order. And, but he's got a heart for his servant. He's got a soft heart for people. And here is his servant. It's horrible to listen, you know, to read about here. He's lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. I mean, some of you deal with chronic pain. And that's just got to be like one of the hardest things in life to deal with. And so here he is. He's in this paralyzed condition and dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to the man, I will come and heal him. And so we see Jesus' authority here in a moment over paralysis. And the centurion, upon hearing Jesus, that he was going to come to his house and heal his servant, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I never expected that. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. And so this Roman centurion, his faith here is really, really tremendous. And he says to Jesus, there's no need for you to come into my house and actually lay your hands upon this man in order to heal him. He says, I understand your authority. I'm a, as a Roman centurion, I am backed up by the entirety of Rome's power. I am an authorized representative of Rome. And when I give a command, the full power and resources of Rome stand behind that command. And he's saying to Jesus, what is true of me concerning Rome, I see is true of you concerning heaven. What is true of me concerning a hundred men in the Roman legion is true of you concerning all of creation. The heavens, the earth, all that is in them must go and it must come or it must do if you command it. And it's a tremendous expression of faith. Remember, Jesus is facing incredible unbelief and opposition by the religious leaders. And here he comes to a Gentile, a Roman who has no, none of the advantages of the Jews. He, he knows nothing of the Hebrew Scriptures. He has nothing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's blood coursing within his veins like the Jews did. He had no temple, any of these kind of things, and yet this faith is birthed out of his life in this unexpected place, in this sea of rejection where there ought to have been faith uh, directed toward Jesus. And uh, Jesus marvels, we're told in verse 10. He heard it and he marveled it, blessed him. And he said to those who followed, Verily, verily, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He said, I ought to have found this faith among the Jews, but here it is, I find it among a Gentile. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so... He marvels when he hears this expression of faith from this very unlikely source, and it blessed him. Spurgeon said, 
uh, concerning verses 11 and 12, a quote by him. The centurion comes from the camp to Christ, and the Israelite goes from the synagogue uh, to hell. One comes in faith, and the other determined in their uh, unbelief. And so salvation does not come through bloodline. It does not come through uh, family heritage. It comes from an individual person putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus then said to the centurion in response to his faith, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed that same hour. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother. So Peter had a mother-in-law, which means he was married, which is a problem um, because if he's the first pope, he's married. So it's a little little difficult, but it's important to recognize that Peter had a wife and he had a mother-in-law. And his mother-in-law was lying uh, there in Capernaum, sick in bed with a fever. And so Jesus touched her hand beautiful, this touch. He touches, he touches, he touches. One day he's going to touch us. It's going to be wonderful. And so he touched her hand. The fever left her immediately, and she rose and served them. Well, you think, my goodness, here he is. He's cleansing lepers, and he's uh, healing people who are paralyzed and are in agony in their paralysis. And the Bible includes here now a record of him healing a mother-in-law of, uh, of a fever. And I think it's tremendous because sometimes we think we can only bring gigantic things to the Lord. And we're hesitant sometimes to bring a fever or a cold or one of our children fall and they skin their knee and they got a boo-boo. And, you know, God doesn't care about boo-boos, does he? But he does care about things. The Bible says casting all of our cares upon him. How many cares is that? That's a lot. Everything. Casting all your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. And so nothing is too small to be brought to him. And, and he touches her, heals her. She's immediately not like, okay, the fever has broke, but I'm going to be a couple of days in bed before I can get going. The healing is complete. And then she gets up, and what does she do? She begins to serve them and probably helping in the making of a meal for everyone that was there. It was on her heart to serve, but her illness was keeping her from being able to do it. And the moment she had the health to do what was in her heart, she began then to serve the Lord and those who were with him. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. That, they might, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he, took our, he himself took our infirmities and he bore our iniquities. And so casting out demons without number in terms of people's lives, healing people, countless numbers uh, of people. So his authority over the demonic realm demonstrated, again, his authority over all sickness. And... and um, when Jesus, and when Jesus saw uh, great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will go, I will follow you wherever you go. So he's a scribe, he's an expert in the law, he is a Jewish religious leader, but he has become a disciple of Jesus, we're told. Both men that are mentioned in this passage are our disciples. So he's a follower of Jesus, and he makes this 
what, what is a very, very emotional commitment to the Lord. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, circle in your mind that word wherever, because that's a really, really big word. I will follow you wherever you go. That's quite a commitment that he's, he's making. And Jesus responds to the commitment that he makes, and he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's going to ask this disciple of his to count the cost behind his commitment. It's very easy to make a commitment like that verbally without counting the cost. And Jesus lets him know what it's going to cost him in order to do the thing that it, he's promising to do to Jesus uh, here. And so Jesus, in essence, is telling him in, in all of this, will you follow me even if it means no mattress or no pillow or no bed? Will you follow me at the expense of comfort? And I don't know about you, but I like comfort. And so that's something that's real in terms of counting the cost. He's basically telling to the man, this is what my life is. This is, you want to go where I go in this world under the direction of the Father. Remember, we are the body of Christ today. And he says, to make the commitment that you're making, you need to understand how far-reaching the commitment is. You need to know that and to count the cost. And so he asks the, the, he points the man back to reconsider his commitment. He wants the man to still follow him, but he wants him to be successful in following him. And for him, he has to lay aside a desire for comfort in order to do that. I think that Jesus wouldn't mention this except for the fact that in our lives, there's a great tendency on the part of even us as his disciples for us as Christians to settle into a life where our God is our comfort. And if something becomes uncomfortable for us or following Jesus creates discomfort in my life or difficulty in my life, sometimes we'll gravitate back toward comfort and say, no, I'm not willing to go where it's uncomfortable for me to go. And there is that, uh, and there needs to be that place where there's the settling in, in our Christian lives where we say, no, I will follow him. I will follow his calling in my life no matter what re sacrifice is required of me in terms of any kind of comfort. And then another of his disciples said to Jesus, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And, of course, uh, this whole idea of, Lord, let me first. You can't call him Lord and be me first. <laughs> it's either me first and he's not Lord or he's Lord and I'm not first. And so he's, he's learning. He's trying to pick things up, and Jesus is going to help him out a little bit with this. Lord, let me first, before I follow you, um, go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, this man's response, he wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to wait until his father is dead and he gets the opportunity to bury him. So this is uh, this man, if the other man had to count the cost concerning comfort, this man has to count the cost concerning um, uh, procrastination. He wants to delay in following uh, the Lord fully. 
And uh, there's a reason for that. And even behind the procrastination, a reason for that procrastination. It isn't that the guy's father just died and Jesus isn't letting him go to his father's funeral. That's not the case at all. Uh, The Jewish people, even to this day, when somebody dies, they bury them that day. So it, it isn't, it isn't that, that's not the scenario that he's in the, in the middle of. He's, he is saying to Jesus, I want to wait until my father dies, and then I will follow you. And why does he want to wait for his father to die before following Jesus and obeying him completely in the call to service and the call to accompany him? Because he wants to wait for his share of the inheritance. And he did not want to risk the inheritance. He wanted to wait till his father was dead, secure his financial security and in his financial inheritance, and then become a follower of Jesus. And so this is a person who puts their financial security ahead of obeying the Lord and following the Lord in his call uh, upon our lives. One of the problems with waiting to follow the Lord and making a commitment to follow him immediately and wholeheartedly and saying, no, I will wait until I am financially secure, is um, who's financially secure in this world? It can take a lifetime to secure that and ten lifetimes in order to secure financial security where I feel like, okay, that's taken care of, and now I can take and... and, uh, Uh, follow the Lord. And so the problem, the risk is that I'll spend my whole life getting financially secure. And then by the time I think I'm there, if I ever think that I'm there, then I won't have any life left with which to serve the Lord. And so the fact of the matter is that those who wait until they're financially secure to start serving the Lord really just never end up doing that. And when Jesus responds, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, but you follow me. In other words, Anyone can bury dead bodies, but not everyone can do my work. And not everyone can fulfill my call upon their lives. Only disciples can do that. And so he's teaching us, each of us in this room tonight, teaching us that we must not make the main focus of our lives what anybody else can do in life, that the life of every Christian is to be engaged at least in some way in some Christian service that cannot be accomplished by anyone else other than a kingdom person and the importance of that. I remember one time listening to a teaching many years ago by a missionary who was teaching in a local church here in town, and uh, he was talking to the congregation, and he said, do you know what the greatest enemy of American uh, missions is uh, today? And he says, it's Christian parents. It's Christian parents who talk their children out of God's call upon their life to become missionaries or some other area of service and tell them that what they need to do is to get themselves financially secure and then later on in life, then obey God's call upon their life. Now, I think it's important when we're talking about becoming a missionary or something like that, I'm talking about not somebody who has a feeling about that or desire about that, but they really, really know that this is what they're supposed to do. And then someone comes in and says, no, you've got to do this and you need to do that. You've got the rest of your life 
to be a missionary. Take care of these things first. Get that situated in your life. And the missionary said in his observation, he says, there's a window of time in a person's life and their calling of God upon their life and so forth where the fire burns for them to take a step of faith for God and to obey Him. And he says that what can happen so often is that window is lost and then that person then begins to to give themselves to financial security and then that great vision to become a missionary or whatever it might be, all of that is lost. And his observation was that a person will become then at 30 or 40 years old a wonderful Christian in a local church but they will never again have the fire uh, to take the step of faith that they ought to have taken earlier in life. And again, these things, this love for comfort, this procrastination, um, this love and concern for financial security, if the missionaries of the world and pastors and others in the world, if they made those things their supreme consideration in terms of obeying God's call, you wouldn't have a pastor in the whole world. You wouldn't have a missionary in the whole world. So these things are very, very deadly to following God's call upon our lives. And it's important that we allow those things to examine our lives as well. Verse 23, And when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea uh, of Galilee so that the boat was covered with waves. You get the picture in your mind. I've been on the Sea of Galilee. The boat that they are in wasn't very big, but they're just getting lashed by the wind. The waves are covering over the boat. Most of these men are very seasoned fishermen and all of this. And so they're in this terrible, terrible storm. Important to realize that they're in the middle of God's will. They're in the middle of God's will. Sometimes I like to think that if I'm in the middle of God's will and I'm obeying Him, that there won't be any storms. Blue skies, nothing but blue skies coming my way. But it isn't, that's not the way that it is. There are storms in the middle of of God's, uh, being in the middle of God's will. And so this great storm comes upon them. But Jesus is asleep down somewhere in the boat. You know, how can Jesus be asleep in a storm like that? What's he been doing that could have him so exhausted? Compassion. Compassion. One person after another after another. We read the passage. He healed all who were sick. He cleansed all who were lepers. Um, He cast out all who were demon-possessed. The tremendous outgo of virtue from himself, the tremendous love that he had upon people, it takes a toll on a person. And so here he is, he's exhausted and he's sleeping. This is why, again, as I mentioned this morning, the importance of praying for everyone who is serving in Vacation Bible School this week. These are creative people. These are servants of God. And they're going to give, 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 and they're going to give of compassion, and they're going to get exhausted and tired from the giving. And the importance of us then coming, undergirding them in prayer so they don't feel alone in what they're doing, and God will answer our prayers to restore them. But this is exhausting stuff. People stuff is exhausting stuff. And when his disciples came to him and they awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. And he said to them, why are you fearful? 
Oh, if you, you of little faith. And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus' authority demonstrated over all of nature. And so the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And so this uh, tremendous, tremendous demonstration of his power and his authority over all of nature. And when he had come to the other side, to the country of the uh, Gergagenes, there met him two demon-possessed men. The other Gospels speak of one who was possessed by a demon that identified himself as legion, for we are many. A Roman legion was made up of 6,000 soldiers. So this man, uh, Matthew speaks of both of these men. The other Gospels focus on just one of them. So these guys are just walking, talking strongholds of the devil, demonic strongholds uh, in, uh, on the face of the earth. I mean, there's no hope for them apart from, from Jesus. And so he came to them. They were coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, son of, you son of God? Now this is interesting. This is a, um, a statement of faith by demons. They know who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God. They know that he is divine as a result of that. Amazing what they know and they confess. And have you come here to torment us before the time? They recognize that Jesus has absolute authority over them. Jesus can do whatever he wants with them. And that one day they are going to be judged and thrown into a place of torment. And that is the eternal lake of fire which was created for the devil and for his uh, angels, those that followed him in the rebellion. And so they recognized Jesus immediately for who he was And now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. And so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, I mean, if you're going to cast us out of these men, then permit us to go away into the herd of swine. So apparently demons, um, they prefer, uh, they, they don't like to be a disembodied spirit. They do like to possess a human being and to express themselves in that way. And if there isn't another human being, they're even willing to uh, do so related to swine. And Jesus said to them, go. And so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And so we have the first mention of deviled ham. Got to work that in somewhere in here in all of history. And so they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Isn't it fascinating today that there are people who opened themselves up to the devil and to his power and to demonic forces. And here is a beast, a pig, a mere pig that would rather be dead than possessed uh, by a demon. And so they perished in the water. And then those who kept, the kind of the men that had been hired to keep over that uh, herd of pigs, they then fled. They went back into the city to tell the owners of of that of, of the pigs, what had happened. They told them everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they hoisted him up on his shoulders and on their shoulders and said, we've never seen power like this. How to um, can we be saved? That's not what they did. They begged him to depart from their region. We beg you to leave. The whole city came out. 
One of the worst prayers in the whole Bible. To tell Jesus to leave and depart from them because the interesting thing that he did is he did exactly what they had asked him to. Jesus will never force himself on anyone. He's a gentleman. He will give every single one of us reason for faith, but he will never force us to become his follower or force us to put our faith in him. And so he departed. One of the worst, sometimes you can buy books like the 100 worst decisions in business in history or the 100 biggest blunders in military history. This is one of the biggest blunders in human history here, this call for Jesus to leave. And so Jesus' authority over the demonic realm. Now you think about it. If you take Jesus out of this world and, and, and you remove him from human history, then what power and authority do we have over the demonic realm? We would have no power or authority over the demonic realm. It is because we are Christians that we are safe from that realm. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I remember as a young boy being exposed to the power of a de- the demonic realm and its ability to hold people in its darkness and in its chains. And so for me personally, I never take it for granted. You take Jesus out of human history and we have no defense against that realm. But praise the Lord, Jesus is in human history. And praise the Lord that he is inside of our lives and wants to be in every person's life. And praise the Lord for his authority over the demonic realm. And so when he had uh, got into a boat and crossed over, he came to his own city, that is the city of Capernaum. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus saw their faith, and we're told in the other Gospels that there were four friends who had a paralytic that, was, uh, that they had put on, the, on his bed, probably a mat of some kind. They're each holding a corner, and uh, they brought uh, their friend on his bed to Jesus. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus is sitting in a room in the middle of a Bible study, and the crowd is so great in the room that nobody can not only cannot... Uh, can, There can't be another person that can get inside of the room, but you can't even approach the doors and the windows. Well, that's what we would expect when Jesus is teaching. And so these men, determined to get their friend to Jesus, take him up on the roof. They remove the roof, whatever it is, tile or straw or whatever it was, and they remove it, and they lower their friend down right in front of Jesus while it was that he was teaching. And when Jesus saw their faith, when you think about these four men, their love for their friend, they will not be deterred in getting their friend to Jesus here. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, um, Son, and, and circle that word within your mind, This man had had one of the toughest lives that a person could ever live. And to hear the master, to hear Jesus call him son, he had to know good news is going to follow. He doesn't say man. He says son. And what a wonderful thing it is to be the father's son. Son, be of good cheer. 
Your sins are forgiven you. And he forgave the man's sins. Jesus is going to also heal him in just a moment. But he began with the man's greatest need. And the greatest need of every single human being is the forgiveness of sins. No matter how great our physical need is, the greatest need we have is to be forgiven of our sins. Sometimes we can think even as Christians, God's never done a miracle for me. If you're a Christian, he has done the greatest miracle that he can ever do for a person by forgiving us of our sins, his Holy Spirit coming into our lives. Our greatest need is for our sins to be forgiven, and that's where he began. And at once, some of those among the scribes, they said within themselves, this man blasphemes. And of course, they believed the fact that only God can forgive sins. Here he is saying that he can forgive sins, and it either means that Jesus is God or he isn't. If he isn't God, then it is blasphemy. Who is he to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. But they weren't open to the other side of the possibility, and that is that he is God and he was God and had the authority to forgive sins. And so they protested, and you notice they protested within themselves. They were thinking the thought. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, do you know Jesus knows our thoughts? Sometimes people say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to him and ask him a few things about what he, well, it'll be a one-sided argument or discussion. Because he will know your thoughts before you have them. And that's a tremendous advantage, whether in Jeopardy uh, or whatever game show you want to talk about or in life. So he knows our thoughts and he responds without them even uh, verbalizing them. And he says, what do you think? Why do you think evil in your hearts for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk. Well, the easier thing to say is to say your sins are forgiven you if you're a mere man. I mean, if I come up to Frank here and say, Frank, your sins are forgiven you, well, nobody can tell whether that's true or not. So anybody can say something, but there's no physical demonstration of it. And so the harder thing is to declare somebody uh, to be healed, to be healed of Uh, of their sins or or to be healed and to rise and walk because if I say to Frank arise and walk and he is a paralytic then uh, that's the proof is in the pudding in terms of whether I really have that power or that authority and so Jesus says that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins he then said to the paralytic arise take up your bed and go to your house And he arose and he departed to his house, demonstrating through the miracle that he had not only the power to heal, but he healed as a demonstration of his authority to forgive sins. Jesus has, and he alone has the authority to provide the forgiveness of sins. And when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men." And then Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at tax at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. We looked at this at some depth this morning, and so I'll leave you to explore the uh, recording from this morning in terms of this passage. And it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came 
and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And here this beautiful miracle that uh, God performed in uh, Matthew's life and a demonstration of his authority to choose whoever he wants to be his followers and to choose whoever he wants to associate with. And then the disciples of John came to Jesus. And these are the disciples of John the Baptist. And they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast often? And so here is this, um, the disciples of John, they pose this question to Jesus about we're doing fasting all of the time. Um, the Pharisees are fasting all of the time, but we notice that your disciples don't fast at all. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and thus his disciples were uh, re- represent the Old Covenant of, of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees, they fasted as a, as a rule in their life, as a, as a matter of Ritual. Every Monday and every Thursday they fasted, whether there was reason to fast in their life or not, whether there was a reason for mourning or not. It was a ritual within their life. And so their fasting had become disconnected from the reality within their life. They weren't celebrating uh, when it was a time to celebrate in their life because now is a day to fast or when it was time to, to, to mourn and to fast. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily do that because that was done on the Mondays and on the Thursdays. So fasting had become disconnected from the reality of what was or wasn't happening within their lives. Jesus' initial response to them in verse 15 was, Can the friends of the bridegroom, talking about his disciples, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And Jesus likened this current period in his ministry with his disciples to a wedding. And so he said, no, this is a time for rejoicing among my disciples. Crowds of sinners are coming to know the Lord, coming to repentance. Their lives are being changed. They're becoming followers of Jesus. This isn't a time for fasting. This is a time for celebration. It would be no more appropriate for them to engage in fasting than to call a fast during a wedding feast. And Jesus declared that his disciples would fast one day when he was taken away. And those three days between his death upon the cross and his burial, and then the day of his resurrection, because then fasting was appropriate and rejoicing would have been inappropriate. And then Jesus went on to say further. He said, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made even worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus makes the same point to them from two very common images in life in the ancient world. And he declares to them 
that he had not come into the world to establish some kind of a, an improvement upon the old covenant of the Old Testament, but to create something entirely new, to create a new covenant. And this was one of the differences between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist and, and who they were disciples of. John's ministry was to call those who were steeped in the traditions of Judaism, those that were under the old covenant, to call them to repentance. He was operating within the old covenant, the old contract for relationship with God. What is a covenant? A covenant is a contract. It is an agreement between uh, two people that defines the conditions upon which they're going to have their relationship with one another, the, the way, how the relationship is going to occur. Businesses sign a contract or they make a covenant with one another in which they define mutually agreed upon conditions upon which we will do business with one another, we will have a relationship with one another. The covenant of the law of Moses is an interesting one. In the Old Testament, God established a covenant with the children of Israel, and that covenant was known as the law of Moses. In order to define what was required of the children of Israel, in order to have a blessed relationship with God. And that old covenant relationship with God is encapsulated best in a single verse in the law, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. And the law said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, God speaking, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine. In other words, God communicated under the Old Covenant, and stay with me if you can because it's an introduction to the Lord's Supper here tonight. God established here that the intimacy and the health of their relationship with God was based supremely upon their doing, supremely upon their obedience to His commandments. And Jesus came along to establish a new covenant, a new contract or agreement for a relationship with God. And this new covenant, our relationship with God, is based upon what God has done for us through Christ. That's why Jesus spoke of it when he introduced the Lord's Supper to his disciples and he instituted the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 22. And he that is Jesus, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He did not come to patch up an old covenant. He died on that cross and was buried and rose again in order to introduce a new means by which we have relationship with God, and it is because of his blood. So, in other words, our salvation is given to us as a gift. We receive it by faith, by trusting in Christ, and then we spend the rest of our lives living a life that pleases God. We spend the rest of our life obeying the Lord, but not in order to earn something from Him, but in response to how good He has been to us in loving us and saving us through His Son. The old covenant was do, do, do. 
The new covenant is done, done, done. You still end up with obedience and the importance of obedience, but it comes out of a completely different quality of life. Jesus has established a covenant, a relationship with God, in which our life is one of not trying to earn and us being the one who determines the intimacy that we have with God based upon our obedience, but one in which our obedience to God is done in response to how good He has been to us. And those are two entirely different qualities of relationship with the Lord. And he makes this point from two common illustrations of life in that day. If you have an old pair of Levi's, let's say, and um, you have a hole in them, well, nobody patches them today, do they? So you've got a hole in your jeans, and you were to take some unwashed Levi's, especially how they used to make Levi's, and you were to make a patch and put that on there and then wash it, what would you get? you get a pucker on that hole. I remember one time I was in Israel and I had forgotten uh, a a garment for um, uh, just like a light jacket or something for the weather over there. I had failed to pack it. And we walked into a city, I think it was in Tiberias, and there was a Levi store. I thought, all right, I'm going to go in there, get something. It'll be like internationally made and won't shrink and it'll hold up. So I wore it. Um, all the way through that trip, got home and washed it, and um, I could have put it on my cocker spaniel as a jacket for it shrunk so much. But you get the image. It, it, you, in other words, the old covenant and the new covenant are incompatible. And in the same way related to wine, when they would put, they would put wine in a new wine skin, goat skin or lamb skin, that wine would be put into that skin. It would ferment. As a part of the fermentation process, it would stretch the skin out. And then if you emptied that wine out of that, that wine got drunk, and you put new wine into that old wine skin, then it would again begin to push and to stretch that skin, but it had already been stretched to its max, and you would run the risk of then splitting the skin and losing the wine. Again, incompatible. And Jesus is saying... To these disciples of John, I haven't come to provide mankind with a patched-up version of the Old Covenant. It's a wonderful covenant. It does what it does. But I've come to establish a new covenant, that covenant that is in his blood. So if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward, we will serve you communion tonight as we meditate upon this wonderful, wonderful covenant that we have with God that is based upon the blood and the sacrifice of Christ.